This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Time to put on the show. Well, usually we go around the NFL at 9.15. However, at that time we're going to be talking to Gerald Everett, which is causing us to flip it up, change it up, turn it around. Now we're going around the NFL. It's time to go around the NFL. The bottom line on the biggest stories in the NFL every morning at 9.15 with Danny and Gallant. Today's an exceptional day. Hut, hut, hike. Let's go, Mora. We got a lot to do and a short time to do it in. All right, let's get right to it. First up, uh, Jimmy G talked to the media yesterday, and I found this uh, a bit interesting. He said that he's talked to Drew Brees about what it's like to split reps with Taysom Hill and get in a flow of a game still, kind of insinuating that that might be a possibility. Uh, a little bit. Uh, we were just kind of talking ball, really. Uh, we talked about the situation for a little bit and just, uh, you know, how him and Taysom did it. And it's, uh, it's a thing that I wasn't really used to, I guess you could say, uh, just the in and out part of it. So I was trying to pick his brain, how he handled that. And, you know, you come out for a play or two and then go back in, how that, how that all works. What kind of advice did he give you on that? Uh, I'll keep that between me and him, but just kind of stay ready type of thing. Uh, yeah, just... It's it's a different type of flow to the game. What? I, I what advice did he give you? I mean, does he expect? A, well, he told me that what I should do is three jumping jacks and a push up while I'm waiting to get back on the field. Or he told me that if I line up at wide receiver, I should run backwards so I don't get chucked in the throat. Told me what that I should stick the- out my leg when he comes onto the field and trip come him on. and injure him, and that way he'll never come in the game. Is I guess I hadn't considered that a possibility. So Trey Lance is going to come on and be your wildcat. Taysom Hill style quarterback until he becomes the starter? I no, no, he's not. The whole reason Taysom Hill plays that role in New Orleans is because they don't care if he gets hurt. You're not going to play the same role with Trey Lance. Like very simply, Trey Lance was the number three overall pick, and whether or not he's ready to start right now, they're not going to treat him like Taysom Hill. God, yeah. What's, what's wrong with these idiots and their stupid questions? Yeah. And also, I mean, we've heard... He's not Drew Brees either! We're hearing, too, that at the very least at the start of the season, and they're both being coy about it, Kyle Shanahan's like, well, you know, what advantage do I have in telling you who the starter's going right. to be? But Jimmy yeah. G's going to be the starter until he's not. That, that's that's how it's going to work. Sure, there might be some red zone opportunities for Trey Lance because of, uh, because of his athleticism, but I, I don't think this is going to be what it was with Taysom Hill. Legitimately. Given what happened to Robert Griffin III, given what happened to Cam Newton, why in the world would a team that traded with three first-round picks, including the next two years, to acquire a quarterback say, oh, you know what? We're going we're gonna to go have him get hit by linebackers. That's, that's what we're going to do just for fun until he's ready to be a starter. That is so dumb. They like to live dangerously. No, they don't. Kyle Shanahan's smart. It's the people asking these questions that are idiots. Gosh, <laughs> Jimmy, do you like football? Yeah, do you, do, what did you talk to Drew Brees about? Good lord. Backgammon. How to alienate your teammates. 
Uh, all right. Well, we'll have a little, a little fun here. Uh, Seahawks D-line coach Clint Hurt talked to the media about their, quote, new defensive lineman. I don't know if we're ever going to draft that high to get Leos that look like that dude. Um, <laughs> this, you know, he's DK is awesome. You know, he's trying to help him with his releases and whatnot and with, working with his hands. There's a lot of carryover, you know, releasing in the line of scrimmage as a wideout to pass rushing. Uh, so it was cool to get to do that with him. We, we've done that his rookie year. He wanted to get back to it, so that's something we'll consistently work on. But it would be cool if I had one that looked like that. I love the guys I got now, though, but he's a little different. Man, I, I, I'm with you. you. You brought this up earlier this week that you want to see Glenn Hurd as the oh, head coach. Oh, my God. That, that, that guy's a, he's a fantastic quote. Also, I can't wait to see DK Metcalf potentially use some of these moves on cornerbacks because if the over-under – if we're going to set one for the amount of corners that try to fight him this year for no reason, there were three last year. If he's adding defensive line moves to his repertoire, I can imagine that we could perhaps get to five or five and a half or something like that. Over under five and a half cornerbacks that confront DK Metcalf over 17 games. I'm going over. You get a magic wand and you can change any player on the Seahawks from the position he plays to a different position. But he the enti- stays the, the same body type and yes. everything. Okay. Yep, same body type, same personality. And the, the criteria is not where would he be best? Where would it be most fun to watch it? If Clint Hurt says it's DK Metcalf as an edge rusher because we're never going to draft high enough to get a, a Leo that looks like him. What's the next one? Jamal Adams is a running back? Maybe. Jamal might like J- Jamal might like contact too much. Yeah. But man, that would be fun to watch. Jamal Adams as a running back is is way up there for me. Carlos Dunlap as a tight end. Yeah, that's another that's a great one. Like you watch him through the middle, like and decide he's gonna post people up. Six he's got six two two eighty five. Yeah. He's got two defenders hanging off of him, and then he just hauls it in and like turns and runs. He would be the opposite of Jimmy Graham, right? Yes. Like if Jimmy Graham if Jimmy Graham wanted to be a wide receiver, Carlos Dunlap would be like, Let me be Shaq in the middle of this thing. Yeah, or one of those ATATs from Star Wars on Hoth where he's just slowly moving forward, but no one can take him out. By Wait, the way, the Seahawks a- do play the Saints ATAT, this year. Yes. Who do you think wins the battle of driving each other to the brink, C.J. Gardner-Johnson or D.K.? Oh, that's a great one. Oh, D.K., man. Like, I see C.J. Gardner-Johnson very clearly makes people mad, but he's clearly a pissant, right? Like, I mean, like when it comes down to it, like, he's a little annoying dude. Like, but he's smart. D.K. Metcalf will ragdoll him, though. What no. if D.K. gets ejected in that game? What are the odds? No, he's not. I I don't I don't believe that DK's. We've never seen DK get knocked out of his game. He's always knocked other dudes out of their games. I I, I wonder I wonder about that one. He he it's it's. He might uh, get a foul. He's not gonna get knocked out. He's annoying. Gardner Johnson's annoying. I bet, and I could be wrong on this, but this would be like Batman versus the Joker. Like this is the this is the this is the battle that everyone needs to see because the Joker who has no power and has no might is still able to get under the skin of Batman with all of the nefarious things that he did. I'm talking Heath Ledger Joker. Like That's what I think of Gardner Johnson. That guy's the epitome of troll. I kind of like him for it. I don't like You're people. Unders- <laughs> I don't like people. You're underselling Heath Ledger's Joker actual... Like, yeah, he doesn't have superpowers, but neither does Batman. Like, Heath Ledger's Joker is very clearly... 
like a psychological warfare CIA former operative. Like that's very clear to me that like he understands he, he, he has a history in, in black ops and that sort of psychological warfare. I really want to know what his actual backstory is because of all those stories of course he makes up about the scars. No, I, I, seriously, that's that's the best theory I've heard ever about the Joker. I love it's that. It's not mine. It's Patton Oswalt's. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a great take. Yes, AT-ATs are the big I thought walking it was called doggies. I've always called them AT-ATs. Well, it's, it's called an AT-AT? That sounds lame. I, I think that sounds... at <laughs> Yeah, AT-AT sounds like what it is. I don't even Look know out for the ad at. We could out. We could ask Grandma the big four-legged robot things. <laughs> We're being really dirty. Get us out. <laughs> All right, uh, Paul. You brought this story to my attention this morning, but you thought that Bills wide receiver Isaiah McKenzie may have gotten caught breaking COVID violations on a video. That is not the case. He I, McKenzie tweeted out a letter he got from the NFL notifying him of discipline for not wearing a mask around the facility with the caption "You win" this morning. But now Tom Pelissero of NFL Network is reporting that the NFL generally just issues a warning first. But McKenzie's violation happened when NFL officials were at the facility in person giving a presentation on COVID rules. So he made it real easy for them. Uh, normally, normally I legitimately feel bad for guys when they get fined by the NFL. Like, I usually think that it is some sort of performative thing by the NFL, whether it's uniform violations. And I think it's a stupid thing. He, he deserved to lose $14,000. Like he, that, that's that's being that's being an idiot about something that is very clear that the that the league and there's actually like a public safety component to what they're doing. He has choose, chosen to not be vaccinated, and then he's not following the rules that are set up in the workplace. He deserves to lose his fourteen thousand dollars. I know a lot of people have a lot of different takes on all of this. I think that our job. I, I thought about this yesterday. I, I know how I feel and how I would talk about this on other platforms. However. If we're talking about this specifically from the football side of things, your job is to be available. What's in the best interest of the team? Everyone getting vaccinated. Period. End of story. Because then you don't have guys that are randomly out or randomly missing. And right now, what? The Bills have two wide receivers who you're not 100% sure is going to be available. You got Stephon Diggs basically tweeting out almost trollingly, $15,000 is a lot of money. $15,000 is a lot of money. And the NFL is going out of its way to make things as difficult as possible for all of these players. Do you really want to live inside this tiny little box if you are one of those players? You know, you, you might have a stand and, 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 you know, outside of the football conversation, I'm not talking about that. Do you want to be available? Do you want to help your team? Easy way out, in my opinion. All right, we found out some of the starting quarterbacks that we've been waiting to hear yesterday. The Jaguars announced that Trevor Lawrence would be their starter. No big No way! Uh. Oh, really? <laughs> The That's Bron- shocking. The Broncos announced that Teddy Bridgewater won out over Drew Locke, but the Patriots and 49ers still are remaining mum and say they don't have any plans to reveal their starters anytime soon. There- I, did, I did see Belichick has said that Cam Newton didn't break any rules. I And that points toward the fact, because my question has been, if Cam checked with the team on what he needed to do to be able to travel and not have to go into a COVID quarantine the five-day sort of re-entry process, or if he just left, thought he'd covered all his bases and then found out from the team, like, oh, I didn't do enough. And it kind of sounds like it's the former, that it's not something that Cam thought and found out later from the team, that he sought guidance from the team and and the information he got was faulty about what would constitute, like, an okay test 
because he still had to get tested daily. They really like him. And it's weird to see how he's treated. Comparatively to Bill Belichick of years past, he has the job. At this point, everyone, if you listen to people talking up there... You think he's going to start? I think think he is going to start week one. I I think Mac Jones should start. I think that Cam Newton is going to start and that there will be a gradual transition as the season progresses. You know, if he had played poorly in that last preseason game, okay, but he played well. And he was looking more like the guy that I, I think that they thought they might be getting when they signed him. I'm not saying it's the right move. I, I that's yeah. that's my read on that situation, though. That's interesting because I've I've thought that Mac Jones is going to start and that they want to be gentle about it because they felt like Cam has has done his best for them and kind of gone along with everything they've asked him and that they just think he's physically cooked. And and that's I think why they're being they're doing it this way because they are being gentle with him. They don't want to embarrass him or anything like that. I, I will say it does seem like he is not unvaccinated, and I do wonder, okay, if he's not available again, like happened last year, and New England finds himself with Brian Hoyer out there against Kansas City, then is Belichick going to feel the same way about that? With San Francisco, I think everything points toward Jimmy G being the starter. That does set it up, though, for you don't even have to get off to a bad start for people to start howling in San Francisco. Like, that's going to be a test. And I think Kyle Shannon's a really smart dude, and I don't think he's going to cave into fan pressure or anything. But if they're 2-2, two and two, you're going to have a lot of people howling for Trey Lance to get out there. And that's that's a tough that that's a tough box to put yourself in because it's kind of like saying, hey, unless you come roaring out of the gates, people are going to expect and ask each week, when are you going to go? When are you going to go to Trey Lance? That, that, that makes sense, but these aren't... These aren't idiot football teams, you know, where yeah, external pressure, I think, is going to factor in. Yeah, you're in. right. There will be, I would imagine, annoying conversations and questions, but that's it. And I think Shanahan put it best when he when he said, why would I, why would I tip my hand just to get you to stop asking the question? I, that's, I mean, yeah, that's the only advantage I think you would get if you were to make any uh, decisions or announcements. 100%. I don't disagree with anything Shanahan's doing, but it feels different because Kansas City is the comparison everybody draws, right? It'll be like Alex Smith and Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. That's what San Francisco's uh, hoping. Right. Uh, no, no. In, oh, in wait, Kansas City. Shoot, shang, hang on. Well, I thought you were talking to San Francisco when they went from Alex no. Smith to Colin Kaepernick. My bad. But that, because right. that's the, but that is another transition because obviously that didn't happen right away, but it happened as the season went along. But with Cap, with, with Mahomes, there were people howling for him. And maybe it's because Alex Smith was considered a better quarterback than, than Jimmy Garoppolo, but I consider them roughly okay. similar type players. I think there's going to be more pressure on San Francisco than there was on Kansas City to turn the page. Interesting. And they've been through it before, but yes, different different situation entirely. And there were people in Kansas City, I think, calling for it. They were quietly calling for it, though. I don't think they were as aggressive as maybe you've seen in other places because I think a lot of people were like, oh, my God, we we know what we're getting out of Alex Smith. We know we can make the playoffs, but we know we're not getting any further than the first or second round. All right. NASA is still uh, efforting Gerald Everett down at the Seahawks facility for us, so we'll, we'll stick here with one more around the NFL story. The Seahawks announced yesterday that Mike Holmgren and Matt Hasselbeck will be inducted into the Seahawks' ring of honor this year. Very appropriate, and we're going to see a run of guys from, from that team. There are a number that, that will be and should be inducted into the Ring of Honor. Um, Walter Jones is already there. Uh, Sean Alexander will, will be not far behind uh, if he's not already there. It, it, it's appropriate and fitting. 
I mean, you've got Holmgren, who was responsible with his arrival of making this franchise matter in a way that it really had never mattered before on a national scale. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, they, they shifted those weird-looking uniforms, and that was when all of a sudden stunk. they were. But when they did, I don't know, there was like a weird relevance that came with them. And you're like, oh, I mean, they're good. Yeah, and that's from that's on the outside looking in, you know. And and, and I remember there there were a couple of games, and, and you and you saw them, and you're like, oh yeah, they're they're respectable. And Sean Alexander does what he won was doing five too. Straight, won five straight division titles. Yeah, they won five straight division titles. They had an NFL MVP. They went thirteen and three. And then Holmgren, we played the cut earlier. It's worth playing it again. Holmgren will always. I mean, people will always. Uh, Holmgren was the the grandfather here in Seattle. But when he kind of took an opportunity to really stick it to the NFL publicly, people in Seattle will always remember this. We knew it was going to be tough going against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I didn't know we were going to have to play the guys in the striped shirts as well. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts of this. That still sticks in the craw of Mike Pereira. Now, Mike Pereira is the guy that you recognize on Fox Sports that comes on and talks about all of the officiating and usually explains to you why what the officials are doing is right. I, I think I think he's an apologist for them. I've been told that Mike Pereira is a really nice guy down to people that knew him when he was in college at Santa Clara and all this different stuff. But he is still bothered by the fact that Holmgren was not fined for having said that. It still really bothers Pereira to the point that he'll tell you that uh, the, the commissioner at the time... The commissioner at the time was all set to send him a letter in which he was finding him, and and he should have been fined, and it was ridiculous what he said. Pereira will go so far as to say that the officiating in that game was fine, that there was no problem with it, even though the main official in that game has expressed regret over the calls that were made and what he kicked. So I, Holmgren will always be loved, if only for that, the fact that he stuck a big fat finger in the eye of the NFL. That's always great. Anytime anyone does that to Goodell, especially, I like it too. They are so lucky that that game did not take place during the era of Twitter, right? Or during the era where people can put these videos up really quickly and turn them around and and everyone can go nuts about them. I mean, that game was bad. But today, yeah, there would be some accountability, I would imagine, like right after the fact. It is Danny Gallant. We're joined now by Gerald Everett, Seahawks tight end. He's one of the big free agent acquisitions. Gerald, first of all, welcome to the show. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us this morning. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me. Well, you're one of the, the veterans in this sense. You're, you're basically one of the only guys that has some experience with this offense before. Now, I'm sure it's not exactly the same as what you ran with the Rams, but your familiarity with what Shane Waldron does has to have given you a little bit of a head start. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, this offense really was uh, something. I mean, it really was something to grasp my first couple of years in the league. But um, having a couple of years under my belt, understanding it, it's it's kind of became uh, simp- simplistic for me. Just trying to break down the different segments of it and understanding that I could be anywhere on the field. But um, I w- it, it didn't really give me a head start. But it just gave me uh, a little more time to really understand it. So coming to Seattle and being able to implement it with Shane, you know, it's been a bit, it's been really beneficial. Your entire NFL career to this point was with the Los Angeles Rams. What's this fresh start with a new organization been like? Have you had to change any habits? What's been the biggest adjustment for you? 
Uh, well, you know, I really haven't had to make any really real adjustments. Um, you know, Pete Pete told me when I signed to just come in and just know that I'll fit right away, and you know, just that happened. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm ha- happy to be here, and I definitely see myself uh, fitting well with the team and in the locker room, developing chemistry with the guys on and off the field, even in the meeting room. Uh, but you know, being in LA my first couple years, I don't really, I don't really see anything changed uh, from my from my perspective. But um, you know, each organization has a different setup and the way they run things. But uh, it's been very seamless for me. We're talking to Gerald Everett here. Uh, this franchise, for a number of different times, has tried to have two tight end setups and use two tight ends a lot for a variety of reasons. It hasn't worked in the past. With you and Will Disley, and I know Colby Parkinson and some of the other guys are going to factor in as well, but you've seen how this offense can utilize two different tight ends. What kind of opportunities is this going to create for tight ends? Well, it can create a lot of opportunities. Uh, being that, you know, we we have uh, an abundance of things that we can do within a structure of the offense, but having guys like DK and Tyler on the outside and a running back like Chris Carson, uh, among others, you know, definitely helps as well. And, you know, uh, Will and I definitely are going to try to add into that and make this, you know, make this thing come back full circle. Is there something that you feel you have as a tight end that's different than every other tight end in the league? Uh, my versatility, obviously, but um, just being able to play any position, uh, you know, whether it be receiver or in the backfield or, you know, a tight end. But um, probably just different things that I can offer and the different things that I can I bring on every on each and every play. So just the unpredictability and, you know, just having a, a, a diversity and a variety of things that I offer to offense and to a team. What's one thing you've learned about Will Disley that has surprised you about him? He's went to UW here. I'm a Husky graduate. I've yeah. cheered for him for years. What's one thing you've learned about Uncle Will that surprised you? I mean, Uncle Will's uh, exceptional in the run game. He's definitely a good hands catcher. Um, but you know, knowing, uh, getting to, getting to work with him and seeing how he, how he works up close to person and in the meeting room, definitely understand why he's had success in the passing game and why he's been in the league and you know been a contributor for the Seahawks for year after year. I was surprised at how soft his hands were because he's he's from Montana. He played some defensive line. Like you, you tell me, like he's a good run blocker. Like when he first started playing tight end, I was like, yeah, I could believe that. Then when I watched him catch, I was like, man, he's 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 got some really good hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will can do it all for sure, and we're definitely going to complement each other and you know bring another factor into the offense that uh, hasn't been seen in years. I've brought this up before, Gerald, and I, I know you're going to be biased on this one, but I, I feel like tight end might be the most violent position in the NFL. You got to block dudes who are bigger than you. You got to run over the middle. Yeah. You got little guys who are diving at your legs. You got big guys who are going to try to take you out if you're trying to catch a pass downfield. I feel like pound for pound, you guys probably, as far as skill position goes, it's not even close. But I think it's 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 really a violent position compared to any other. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, outside of the quarterback position, I feel like you definitely have to be more one of the more aware players on the field, you know, just knowing different dimensions of the game, whether that be the run game or the pass game, or, uh, you know, just being a complete teammate and just being where you need to be, doing what you need to do as best you can and getting the job done, no matter who you have to block or who you have to, who's covering you in the, in the pass game. So, yeah, I agree with you on that one. Here's the last question for you, Gerald. Of all those different things a tight end is asked to do, What's your favorite? What's the most satisfying? Is it catching a touchdown pass? Is it a pancake block? What thing do you like doing most as a tight end? 
you know, I really like just having that work that that workload. I really like being the focal point of the play, whether I'm catching the touchdown for the game winner or securing the edge or having the key block on the play to make the play go, or you know, just being where I need to be, if, even if I have to decoy or even if I have to be double covered just to free up, you know, a teammate. That's that's really that really is, gives me joy just knowing that you know the success of the play relies on me or more so than others. So I really just like the the pressure and those type of moments. He is Gerald Everett. Gerald, we know you're very very busy, so we're grateful for you taking the time to talk to us this morning, and we look forward to watching you as the season gets underway. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having. That is Gerald Everett. It is Danny and Gallant. Our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. Our offensive line guru. Ray Roberts, he chimed in on an earlier conversation. I'm, I'm going to relay what he had to say. That's coming up next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. We had an interview a Palooza, right? We went Jerry DePoto, D. Eskridge, then Gerald Everett. Mariners GM, Mariners open a series against the Royals starting tonight at T-Mobile Park. Uh, tomorrow night, you got a sing-along fireworks show, which should be a blast for everybody. If you're looking for tickets, check Mariners.com. Seahawks, our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. We had also had a number of discussions earlier about position battles, and I expressed a desire to consult our offensive line guru, Ray Roberts. And Ray responded via text. So this is... Yeah, this is this is this is going to be uh, similar to cr- crowdsourcing, right? The word of Ray. Good morning, Paul and Danny O, your neighborhood offensive line guru on the scene. First up, the two guards should prop up the play of either center. I like Posick, but Fuller clearly has won this competition. Mm. Fairly de- definitive declaration from our friend Ray Roberts. Yes, it is. Two. Daryl Taylor will make plays as a pass rusher if the DTs can get better pass rush push in the middle. And they should not overwhelm him by also having him learn the linebacker spot. So let's talk a little bit about whether or not his his best place is at strong side linebacker or if they should just have him doing what he did in, in college, which is rush off the edge. I think that's the easiest way to gradually put someone into the league because you don't want to ask someone to do too many things. There's always a ton of information coming your way. And for Daryl Taylor, he is a rookie. He, this, he, has, he has not played in an actual NFL game before. Also, hearing Ray say that maybe there's he, he wants a little more push in the middle or that it would be helpful to have more push in the middle. Makes me want to see a deal done with Geno Atkins. I want to Bring see him on the Gino. Seahawks. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm the same way. Like, and I'm usually not captain. Go sign the name. I know. Like I'm usually, I'm usually like, but defensive tackles. So Geno Atkins was at one point, one of those sort of stud defensive tackles, which is a rarity in the league. Oh, it's he really was hard top to get three. The yeah. He, he was yeah. definitively a top three. He was just stuck in Cincy. He's not that anymore. But defensive tackles can have a long shelf life in this league. Like defensive tackle, like if you talk about like positions that can fall off abruptly, running backs can go off a cliff overnight. Defensive tackles can kind of have a long tail. Like Brandon Meebane is a great example where even the Seahawks, by the time that they let him leave in free agency, were like, I don't know how much longer he's going to be affected. He goes and has great years with the Chargers. Defensive, there can be a long, so I'm, I'm with you on Geno Atkins. As far as another veteran that might come in, that's Ray's third point. They should bring KJ back. Where are you at with KJ Wright? 
KJ was your best linebacker best line last year. Better than Bobby none of us. None of, none of us disagree with that, right? We all and we all look at it and say, why isn't he employed right now? Well, he is the he is example A of the guy that got caught in the crunch of a declining cap. He deserves a raise, and not only that, people were asking him to take a massive haircut in in terms in terms of salary, and he doesn't have a spot right now. Top one hundred player in the league, and he doesn't have a contract right now. Man, I wonder what he's asking for and how far off he is from anybody anybody in the league and. I don't know. Maybe there have been some conversations about, look, we know injuries are going to happen. Just hang out. We'll take care of you. Uh, okay, so Ray is very very firmly on the side of bring KJ back, and it sounds like play Daryl Taylor at the position that you drafted him for, which was pass rusher. Four, it is called a bear front. This was in address to my question of whether the bear front was uh, something guys on the internet were saying. Was that some, something that the, the people who like to tell you that they crunch tapes of? <laughs> Ray says it is called a bear front. Ah! Taylor, Taylor and Green are not switching positions. Okay. That was my second where people are like, Rasheem Green doesn't have his hand down. Is he playing strong side linebacker? Is he? Nope, nope, nope. They are not switching positions. Most times the defensive end and linebackers on the end of the line usually play from a two-point stance. So Rasheem Green is, even if he doesn't have his hand down, is in a defensive end slot. He's their pass rusher, what they refer to as the Leo. Five. Most people have no idea what they're looking at when it comes to offensive line play. We at least admit it. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> the word of Ray. Oh. And, and, then, and then Ray provided a little bit of information, which is the bear front was developed by Buddy Ryan when he was coaching the Bears that. defense. It basically creates one-on-one pass rush opportunities for five defensive linemen. Mm. So by having a, a 4-3 alignment and then having a strong side linebacker in which that guy also serves as a pass rusher, you, you're creating. And the difference here would be that Seattle's strong side linebacker has, has never really been used, at least when Bruce Irvin moved and played that. That was never really a pass rush spot. That was never really. That, guy, that guy's primary responsibility was setting the edge. That guy's primary responsibility was setting the edge and then dropping into coverage. They did not ask him to rush the passer. With Taylor, you can do that. Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Or you can also move Taylor inside and or, or move him to, to the actual defensive end spot, the, the Leo spot that's there. But yeah, if Taylor's there, have him rush the pass, rush the passer more, and that is going to give you a flexibility there and ask him to do something that you have not typically done under, under Pete Carroll's defensive format. Nice to have that kind of versatility. But I do wonder. Um, I do wonder if there are other guys that you could maybe say the same thing about that also are potentially going to get the short end just because you have someone young like Daryl Taylor who you want to put in in both of these spots and maybe moving him from one place to the next and the other side to the other side if they're going to do that. Leo to strong side linebacker or something like that. Does that potentially, if they're moving him to that, defensive end spot get in the way of guys like Rasheem Green or get in the way of, of, of guys like Benson Mayoa who you would probably want to have on the field in terms of Mayoa a little bit more often than not when it comes to the question of Daryl Taylor I'm not of a mindset I don't think that you should play the young player to develop him with an eye toward what he will do later I I, I think you're at a point on this team right now I would be more willing to do that at cornerback with someone like Trey Brown than I am for Daryl Taylor, a guy who has missed a year and is changing positions. I, th- I think I'm more willing to do that at corner than I am at strong side linebacker. That primarily uh, has to do with the fact that K.J. Wright is out there. Yeah, that, if, if, that, that's if, a big fact. If, if you're telling me that Daryl Taylor isn't as good as K.J. Wright, why isn't K.J. Wright here? 
the, the corner side of it, though, does scare me just because I think there's a lot more danger for bad things to happen when you have a corner playing in one of those spots as a young player. Because we've also seen, too, it, even for some of the best corners in the league, there's a pretty dramatic adjustment to the first season or so that these guys have out there. And it could be pretty catastrophic at first if you got a guy who's especially aggressive at the beginning. I mean, even for like someone like Marcus Peters. I mean, Peters made plays, but Peters also blew a lot of plays, too. <laughs> Peters is such a wild card. Yeah. It's, Dan- it's Danny and Gallant. Uh, we're going to race flags. That's coming up next. From the pocket. And flags everywhere. Flag on the play. Now there's a flag down. Every morning at 9.45 with Danny and Gallant. Brought to you by Carter Volkswagen. If the noise persists, the defense will be charged with a timeout. Flag on the play. It's time for us to take stock of everything that's occurred. We touched a lot of different bases, right? We've gone through and told you who's starting where, all of the solved all of the starting lineup questions for the Seattle Seahawks. We get to set the table for the Mariners. Offered a little bit of kudos to the Minnesota Twins for a, a, did Seattle a solid last night, right? Yes, Almost they did. Almost blowing blowing a game to the Boston Red Sox, but then coming back and winning it in the 11th. You're two and a half back of the Red Sox for the second wild card year. A game back of the A's who are going to be facing the Red Hot Yankees tonight. You got the Royals in town. Hopefully, Kansas City will be a layup in the way that the Detroit Tigers were supposed to be this year. In no. the way that the Texas Rangers were and, and, and have returned to being were supposed to be this year, too. It's always so dicey because you look at these and you're like, yeah, you're a better team than them. Well, even even in a better team, you should expect to win, in best case scenario, two or three games against a, a, a team, even if it's the worst team in the league. Worst team in the league is going to win a third of their games. They um, they were in a series with New York at the beginning of the month where it went to extra innings the first game. They, they lost two or three, but they were competitive. They won the second game of that series. They did take three of four from Houston before the Astros did things to the Mariners over this past weekend. And, yeah, the, on Wednesday, they went to the 10th inning with Houston and could have taken two or three again. So they're not they're not a pushover, unfortunately, which I would like to say they are. But I do feel like it's that, like, make your bunnies. Yeah. You got to make, you make your layups, man. You got to make the putts. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to raise a flag. And it's for the Mariners tonight. Tonight's going to be South of France night. They got a t-shirt and baguettes that they're handing out. One of the things the Mariners do really well is to accentuate sort of the quirkiness of their the, establishing the connection between fans and players. Like they've they've always done this very well. Kings Court, I thought, was a really cool. It, it was it was something to feel really good and unique about in Seattle during what was a really rough stretch of teams' performance. It celebrated the one good thing about this franchise during a really really tough stretch. I'm excited to see what it's going to be like. I. I, I feel, and hopefully it's one of those opportunities for fans to bond with a player. Like, it's goofy. Yeah. But it's cool, right? It's like the Maple Grove with James exactly. Paxton. Ex- exactly. Like, those little things, like, those are the things that I love about sports. And it's it's a, it's a kind of goofy way to emphasize a, a player who has been incredibly important to the Mariners and, and an excuse for everybody to go nuts tonight. Berets are... Away, I guess that they are they giving away teal berets because I mean no, it's a t-shirt, it's a t-shirt uh, and a baguette, right? Okay, the baguette. I think that's good. what they're handing out. I, I love baguette. Uh-huh. Yeah, get a little Absolutely. olive oil, put a little pepper, red pepper in there. Oh yeah, 
I'll just eat the bag. I'll eat the baguette like a savage. Like I'll be clear, you don't even need to give me a knife, and I can tear through a baguette. Um, I, I hope everybody has a fun time tonight. I hope it's just it's one of those goofy things. There's a sing along night for the fireworks tomorrow night. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what the reaction is because the Mariners are legitimately in this chase, and it's it's one where you can feel like it's house money. Like it's yeah. Not, like, this is not like it's – because the Mariners have been in playoff chases before, but it's always been this, like, I hope they finally pay this one off. This should feel like the start of a window opening rather than, oh, man, we might finally make it. Yeah. I, I think that's the best way to look at it. Have zero expectations the rest of the way. Just kick your feet back up and relax like you're on vacation. Just it doesn't matter, right? I mean, it, you can only – if you have those kind of low expectations, you can only be happy. Maybe that's a terrible way to go through life, but that's sort of how I operate. Just don't expect anything. Ty France's name lends itself to some fun nicknames, too. Joe Vieira, who's a local reporter, uh, somebody I know, I went to the UW where I went, um, but he had one yesterday making plays on words like, Ty France, except making wry little comments. Sly France. <laughs> and then it was... Uh, the the other other options uh, were tie France, but with fancy leggings, fly pants. Oh <laughs> it was all little plays on words over that. I, it, was, it was right up my alley. So yes. I'm looking forward to South of France tonight. You may not have a child, but you are a dad with your dad joke. Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. Mora, what do you got for a flag? I am going to raise one to Luke Wilson. Announcing his uh, retirement a day after signing with the Seahawks, he he revealed that once he reflected, um, he had had some heart issues this off season and just kind of thought it was the best time to step away and pursue uh, many other options that I'm sure he has after playing football. So, uh, in raising this flag, I want to play a clip of him doing one of his favorite things, which is making fun of Danny. I look at that guy like my guy Danny, and you know he's always got these cool suits on. Now, back in the day, before he sold everybody out in Seattle. He was like the hipster suit guy. Now that he's a big New Yorker, he's got the three-piece kind of like London, England, you know, early 1900s vibe going because he's, you know, he's just flashing all his bread now. But it's one of those things where, like, I couldn't really see my guy Danny wearing that stuff. But it's more like, you know, I'm an older guy. I really don't care about fashion, but I want to have a little bit of fun. I can just throw on a Hawaiian shirt. Um. Luke, big- Luke did Luke did my second favorite. Like his when he and Max Unger would play hipster or hobo. Like that was they they used a different word for hobo, which was less like a hobo is an an itinerant worker. Um, hipster or hobo was pretty fun. Moffat was pretty good one one time too because he came over. I was wearing a white shirt with a skinny tie, and he was like, "Excuse me, sir, I need you to move so I could fix your IT." Like he he pretended like I was IT support, which was <laughs> really well done. Um, yeah, I'm gonna miss Luke. I'm gonna be a fan for whatever Luke does next. I've only had a couple of Luke Wilson memories, but I believe it was photo day for us at Bonville in 2019, where we're at the VMAC and. We actually have all the photos of the outtakes where Luke Wilson just stops by and just starts heckling us, but specifically Danny, and Danny's just cackling up a storm, and I thought it was really funny. I had never met Luke Wilson to this point, but I'm excited. I, I really hope that he does some sort of podcast. I Really, <laughs> like, and I, I would listen to that very, very often because I'm a, I'm a podcast guy, and I feel like he's the kind of person that goes down the very curious deep dives that I sometimes find myself going on. Oh, we had him on Wyman and Bob once. 
Sorry, Danny. And he told us he watched that Netflix documentary, Wild Country. About, yes, uh, about which is a fantastic cult. documentary. And what was the guy's name? O- Osho or Osho? Yeah, yeah, it's the Rajneeshi. Uh, and basically, Luke was like, you know, I don't, I don't think he had all bad ideas. He was kind of spitting some fire. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, no, Danny, you Lo- live near that. Yeah, Luke and I, Luke and I have had long conversations about that documentary. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. It also should be brought up though, in the midst of praising Luke, he also is a weird Canadian who grew up thinking that Canada won the War of 1812. Like it, he he it wasn't until he came to America that he realized he thought Canada was one and zero against the U.S. in global conflict. It's like what? What are you nuts? Well, we did invade and get repelled. Yeah, they didn't win. They no, did no, no. not win. Well, that's like the same logic that we would have for other perhaps invasions of the 20th century, isn't it? Yeah, he he did. They, they didn't win. They're not one to know. That is that isn't how that went down. Paul, where's your flag? Uh, I am going to just throw a flag really quickly at, at all the conversation that we constantly hear about Sean McVay and his photographic memory. I, I'm sorry, like I don't care, and I don't think it's that big of a deal either. <laughs> I, like this idea that he signed Matt Stafford because they were having a conversation about a game he was on the sideline for, and Stafford could also remember it after a couple of drinks. I can still remember individual things that I've done in football games in high school and in flag football it's not that impressive i think anyone who's played the sport you remember most of the things that you've done along the way photographic memory like calm down you are not special do you feel better yes i do i do feel better why me to tell you about my 48 yard touchdown uh, run god no no wyman can actually recall like bob and i used to be so impressed with the way he could recall games throughout the season so maybe mcveigh needs to get him on staff I, yeah, but again, before we get too crazy about Dave Wyman, remember that he also fell, hit his head on his trunk's bumper once, and then threw away his keys. So let's not pretend that like Dave Wyman's some sort of savant here. Uh, would like to thank Gerald Everett. Would like to thank D. Eskridge. Would like to thank Jerry Depoto, the Professor John Clayton, Maura Dooley, who keeps things on the straight and narrow. And he is Paul Gallant, and yeah, don't test his memory. Maybe he just needs to go toe-to-toe with McVeigh about stories, Glory Days stories. Oh, yeah, that would be fun. And he is Danny O'Neill, and as Luke Wilson once said, a sellout, he is. Up next, it's just me, the question I've got for you. Where would you rank Quandre Diggs among the most important Seahawks? So long, farewell. Friday, Friday, got to get down on Friday. We'll be back tomorrow.